0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam
0: Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson.
1: This is a sacrament. And no, I ain't lost my mind. We are drinking to new life. Tish gonna have Fanny's
0: baby. That's Regina King in If Beale Street Could Talk, director Barry Jenkins' follow-up to his best-picture-winning Moonlight. Beale Street, an adaptation of James Baldwin's 1974 novel of the same name. On this week's show, we've got a review of Beale Street,
1: plus thoughts on the Palm door winning shoplifters from Japan's Hirokazu Koreta. We'll also discuss results from the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards, which were announced last weekend.
0: All that and more ahead on Film Spotting.
1: Welcome to Film Spotting. It's the absurd time of year, Josh, where every new film we watch is misguidedly being evaluated through the lens of, is it top 10 of the year worthy? It really does screw everything up, doesn't it? Yeah. Not fair. Not fair to the films (laughs) at all. Probably not, but that is where we sit. And as we sit, Josh, we are exactly one week away from our top 10 of 2018 roundtable. Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson will be our guests for that.
0: What's your to-do list look like right now? Well, I'll preface it by saying that I feel especially good this year about how much I have been able to fit in, but I never feel complete. And that is, of course, the case. So there are about five titles. I'm not going to name them, but I have a couple of documentaries, a few from some major filmmakers yet, uh, that between now and next week, Monday – I hope to see at least a handful of them.
1: Yeah, I'm in a similar boat, actually, as of this weekend. And we may get to these titles here a little bit later in the show. I've crossed off all of the major ones that I felt like were homework. They Mm -hmm. were things I absolutely had to get done. And at this point, everything else is gravy. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have maybe 25 titles I'd like to see. But I do feel like I'm in a pretty good spot now. It's on to the dreaded task of actually determining the final 10 films. But we have business to take care of now. Before we get to that, we are going to discuss Barry Jenkins' latest, if Beale Street could talk, and we will also have a few thoughts on the Palm Door winning shoplifters from Japanese director here at Kazu Kureta and. We announced this past weekend the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards, so picks for Best Picture, Director, the acting categories, and much more. We will share some of our thoughts and responses to that ballot and how the winners turned out. All that plus Massacre Theater and my thoughts on Spider-Man Into the
0: Spider-Verse later in the show. One more I have to add to my list, actually, Adam. If Beale Street Could Talk is one of those films we certainly watched with the top 10 potential lens on. Let's see how it turned out. Drumming my pain with his fingers. You ready for this? Singing my life with his words. I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. Killing me <laughs> with
1: we are drinking to new life. Tish gonna have Fanny's baby.
0: <laughs> I hope it's a boy. We're gonna have a baby. i will have you out of here before it is. You sure about that?
1: You're not by yourself. These are our children,
0: and we gotta set them free. La, 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 gotta hold our baby in my arms. I'm with you
1: you trusted love this oh, far. I I it it all the
0: The last time most of us saw him, Adam, writer-director Barry Jenkins was accepting Oscars for 2016's Moonlight, including, quite dramatically, Best Picture. That sort of success gets you a lot in Hollywood. It's one reason I still like to keep an eye on the awards. And indeed, Jenkins used his newfound clout to pursue a passion project, an adaptation of James Baldwin's 1974 novel, If Beale Street Could Talk. Set in 1970s Harlem, the plot centers on a troubled young couple, Fani, played by Stefan James, who is awaiting trial in prison after being falsely accused of rape, and his girlfriend Tish, played by Kiki Lane, who is desperately working to clear his name while also carrying their child. Though an adaptation like this is no easy task, Jenkins surely had more resources at his disposal post-Oscars than he did while making Moonlight. I wonder if you saw any particular evidence of that on the screen, Adam. In many ways, this is clearly the work of the same filmmaker in terms of style and sensibility. But is there anything about the movie that reveals Jenkins taking these resources, this opportunity to even more fully come into his own powers? Uh, In short, what impressed you most? Hmm. I already know you liked it. Yeah. So what impressed you most about If Beale Street Could Talk? I loved it, actually,
1: and there's so much I could outline that really impressed me. I don't begrudge anyone, certainly, who prefers Moonlight to If Beale Street Could Talk, who perhaps even thinks it's the more provocative or challenging film. I don't probably agree with that, but either way, for me, Beale Street is no less of an achievement. I think you could actually point to its ambition, Compared to Moonlight, at least in terms of its scale, the sheer number of characters and the scope of If Beale Street Could Talk is grander than Moonlight and the audacity of trying to harness James Baldwin's language and his mixture of the personal and political. Maybe as well, and we'll talk about this, I hope, in a little bit more detail, the way Jenkins doubles down here on the influence of Wang Kar Wai and the lushness of this film is something that we saw elements of undoubtedly. In Moonlight, and here he's taken it to another level. I just want to say my experience with this movie, as we've joked a little bit about cramming all of these films in last minute, and we will confess a lot of them too were not having the greatest viewing experience because, unlike Roma, which we did both see on the big screen, we both watched if Beale Street could talk from the comfort of our couches. Yeah. And Maybe not ideal, especially when this happens often. You're very excited to watch a movie. Of course you are. You have high expectations. It's Barry Jenkins. Why wouldn't you? But it's a weeknight, and you're tired, and you know almost nothing about the movie, except it doesn't promise to be an easy sit. I suspected that I was going to see some bad things happen to good people in this movie, and I apologize if that didn't get me pumped up to throw If Beale Street Could Talk in my DVD player, And then the movie starts, and within seconds, all of that tension and all of that trepidation just dissipates, which doesn't mean I didn't end up wrecked watching some very bad things happen to some very good people. But really, for me, Josh, from frame one, I was so swept up in this romance, the central relationship between Tish and Fonny, and the romanticism with which Jenkins renders that relationship, that I was comfortable observing this world for as long as Jenkins would let me do it. And I think it really sunk in from the opening sounds, not even the images, but the opening sounds of Nicholas Bertel's score. Oh, it's a great score. There's a melancholy to it, an elegiac quality to it, a deepness and a resonance that grounds it in the harshness of the world that surrounds these two lovers. But it also often flutters and occasionally soars. And I think for me, it really just, it hints at a spirit that is all-powerful and eternal, just like this love is, and then we see that manifested in the cinematography as well. I could go on and on, but I want to hear what you thought.
0: Yeah, what you're pointing to, all these things that you're highlighting, it's interesting, even in that plot summary and your trepidation, which was right, because this this is some difficult stuff this couple is facing. Um, that is not what this movie prioritizes. No. That's what I found most distinctive about it. He does double down on the longing and the romanticism, uh, that we associate with juan you are you 're right in comparison to moonlight because that 's what he wants to put at the forefront here, mm-hmm. whereas moonlight had moments of that ha- had these elements of, of of grace and and loving relationships among people, it was also very much a struggle yeah. right um, and and here, if Beale Street could talk through jenkins lens because the baldwin book is a lot angrier it's a lot angrier than this film um and, and not that this movie doesn't have anger in it there are uh, a couple of montages quick montages that put fanny and Tisha's story in the context of mm-hmm. a larger african-american experience where we'll see um archival footage or photographs actually of black men being railroaded through the justice system Um, so they're given that larger context you sense the anger there but it is the lushness of their love for each other that Mm -hmm. this movie wants to put at the forefront and that distinguishes it not in a better way necessarily but in a very unique way from a number of other very good movies we've seen this year that are also depicting the african-american experience you think of something like black klansman or sorry to bother you both angrier films. Um, Sorry to Bother You and Black Klansman in a lot of ways both very much funnier films. So they have their own qualities in that way. Even something like The Hate You Give which I haven't seen myself but I've read a lot about and talked to people who loved it. Uh, These are movies that I think are for good reason showing us the injustice Mm -hmm. and the rage wanting us to feel the rage at having that injustice in our face. If Beale Street Could Talk does that. But what it also makes us really feel is what is lost Mm -hmm. when that injustice is allowed to go on. What goodness is squashed out. And Jenkins does that by really chopping up this movie from those present day, more straight dramatic scenes of Fonnie in prison and Tish trying to get him out with flashbacks mm-hmm. to their romance together, when they found an apartment together and are searching for a bigger loft and and trying to build a good life together under oppression while always making mm-hmm. us clear that they're living in an occupied state, right? Um, but they are still with, especially Tish's loving family, they have found a way to create a flourishing life together. And when we feel that, it hurts all the more when we see it just being cruelly squished out for them. The way I was thinking about what you just expressed is when
1: you see how beautiful the world can be, and we do so many times in this film, it only amplifies the ache of how ugly it is. It doesn't distract from it, it doesn't take us away from it. I think it only amplifies it. And we were talking about that lushness and going back to that opening scene, you have Tish and Fani, they're walking, they're embracing, they're kissing. The haze from the sun presents this sort of glow around them. And then you've got the richness of what they're wearing. They match. One is wearing more blue with yellow. The other's wearing yellow with blue accenting it. The richness of that deep blue and yellow against their brown bodies. It's so warm. It's so inviting. And then with a line of voiceover and the sound of a buzzer, that embrace and that moment is broken. And we're seeing Tish behind glass. And she's waiting for Fanny to come talk to her. We now see that he is in prison. The haze is gone. It's more faded. Everything's harsher. That deep blue has been replaced by the lighter blue, the faded blue of the prison uniform he's wearing. But behind him, every time we see that close-up of Fani, the perspective of Tish looking at him, there's a yellow wall. That same kind of rich yellow wall, even in this place, it's still behind him in these close-ups. So every close-up we see of Stefan James, who's incredibly good here i think in this performance that's the way she sees him we're seeing him through her lens and that warmth that adoration and appreciation is still there despite his circumstances and i think the use of light and the color with the cinematography james laxton is the dp here coupled with the production design and those performances and the editing the pace of this film was something else that's Markedly different from Moonlight. The patience that Jenkins exhibits, it all invites us to be those observers, to see the beauty in the way the sun shines in through a window. I'm thinking about a scene. I could pick out any scene from this movie in any frame, but one in particular when Brian Tyree Henry shows up. Remarkable performance. He's in the film briefly, but very memorably and he's a friend kind of from the neighborhood he comes to their place Tish and Fonny and they're just having a beer and they're talking about their experiences and their circumstances and there are these shots of Fonny with the sun shining through a window in the background and it turns their beer bottle into this golden yellow that matches perfectly with the green and the shirt that he's wearing as he's holding it and his elbows propped up next to a green flower pot that completely matches his shirt and that's where I think that one car influence really comes through here. He's always been very open and direct about that. I think he even brought it up on the episode here on Film Spotting, I think 610, where I interviewed him and one of the stars of Moonlight, Naomi Harris. I feel like you can study and dissect every frame of this film in terms of its color and its framing the same way we talk about In the Mood for Love.
0: Yeah, that scene you talk about, the dinner scene where they have their friend Daniel over Brian Tyree Henry, uh, his character, and it's just a quiet, Homey meal together is almost a push and pull between these two things we're talking about because mm-hmm. it it has that aesthetic you're describing sure. of comfort and flourishing and this is what people should be able to do who are mm-hmm. young and in love. But it's also a ramshackle
1: a place. Well, but it's, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a ramshackle still home. Place. Well, that's and so it has it matters to them,
0: and, and it's a home full of this love. Yes. And so that all comes through in the design and the way it's shot. But the push and pull there is that Daniel is also sharing the story of his recent incarceration. Mm-hmm. All right? So you have again this cocoon. Um, it's a and this this plays into the fact that Tish is pregnant. It's almost like they've built there's this womb they've created that yeah. they're within that's protecting them from this outside oppressive world. But even there when they've built that and are enjoying this moment of quiet with Daniel When he starts talking about the fact that a very similar thing happened to him that will soon, we know, happen to Fani um, and he has been imprisoned, it's just kind of trying to pierce into that bubble that they've created. And so there's that that push and pull. Now, you might, as you're describing these scenes, they are beautiful. And if someone who hasn't seen it yet might say, man, that it sounds like it might be a little too much. Hmm. Like, it might be a little overboard. I think the only moment it struck me that way, which and it's a very Wong Kar moment, is when Fani, he's also a woodworker. Mm-hmm. And so it's an extended scene of him working on a piece of wood, right. one of his sculptures, essentially, and the camera is just circling him and... I mean, he's puffing more smoke than I've ever seen anyone from a cigarette. And it's just it becomes this swirling dance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's absolutely beautiful to look at. It's it's very ostentatious. Sure. And I think one thing that it does also work well is the idea that we see him, as you mentioned, throughout this film, mostly through Tish's eyes. Yes. And I think Stefan James is great as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think Jenkins sets this part up for him to knock it up for the sure. park because the movie's just smitten with him, yes. also now he holds that well, and he doesn't abuse yeah, it, I think he earns it completely and he right. earns it, and he's also willing to puncture it in those prison scenes yes, um i I like how you describe that they're they retain their love for each other, though it's altered, it's mm-hmm. damaged, it's literally bruised in some cases, um and one of the scary maybe one of the saddest moments in this film for all the things that happen to these two is one of those conversations of these beautiful close-ups back and forth. And you see that he's not looking at her the same way mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. And, and in a way that is more crushing than mm-hmm. anything else you've seen. And that's a moment of acting as well. That Stefan James absolutely makes work. Hmm.
1: You're absolutely right. I think that moment you described as the most ostentatious, it worked for me so well because I think you recognize in that moment that it's the way he feels lost in his work it 's almost a fantasy sequence because that 's yeah, an escape that 's an escape from the real world for him is the way it he is. can get lost in the artistry of his craft. There are so many sequences in here that I adore. I think we could honestly spend the entire show just kind of breaking down moment by moment, some of them, including the Brian Tyree Henry lament about the impact of his time in prison is one of them. The sequence that comes right after they have found a loft together that might be the makings of a new home where we just see them mostly silently walk through the streets together, walk right down the middle of the street with life happening around them. It's almost another fantasy sequence where this is the way in her mind, Tish, in her perspective, she reflects on this moment. They kind of glide along assuredly and steadily just like so much of this film does the love scene how about the love scene in this movie their first real physical encounter which is so gorgeous and so tender but the one that honestly stands out for me the most is the one that ironically is probably arguably the least cinematic because it's the most theatrical and it's the one that comes i think Maybe about 16, 17 minutes into the film. It's pretty early on, and it's where Tish has this announcement that she's going to make. She breaks it to her family, and the family decides they are going to break it to Fonnie's family. And they're going to do this by inviting them over. This is a 12 to 14 minute sequence. We spend most of it within the living room of Tish's family. And then, of course, it gets more and more crowded and conflicted as more bodies get in there. We also do digress. We go to other flashbacks during the sequence a couple of times, including, I think, their first real date together where they kind of discover who each other are as individuals. But in this sequence, the actress is named Teyana Paris. She's oh. the sister Ernestine. Yeah. There to defend her sister. From honor. Chirac.
0: She was the lead in Chirac. Oh, was and she, she? Okay. Yeah, just
1: killed it. I thought she was very good in that film, but I didn't make the connection there. She's the sister, and she's mostly standing back. But then when this assault comes directed at her sister and at her family, because these two families do not see this relationship or the product of their love <laughs> through the same lens at all, one of Fanny's sisters speaks up and is quite aggressive towards Tish, and that prompts Ernestine to get right in her face and that moment the animosity that's clearly there in her voice but also the way she's holding herself back clearly trying to threaten her though but that quiet kind of menace the way she does it the way she stands up for her sister that was so charged i honestly jumped out of my seat that's how excited that scene everything about that whole sequence got me and i think that's because it contains so much. It's its own film just within that 12 to 14 minutes what it says about the class conflict that's going on a little bit between the two families, the conflict over faith, the way they view religion and how that plays out, gender and those roles between husband and wife and then the way the women and the men ultimately get separated in that scene. It's this incredibly intricate,
0: emotionally draining scene and I knew I was on board with this film from that moment on. You know what I also liked about that sequence is it gives... One moment, she's not quite as brazen as her sister, but it does give Tish and and Kiki Lane as well a chance to show um, a bit of fire. Yeah. She does at one point come and stand up for herself. And I think that's crucial because for good reason, again, we're seeing a lot of this through her eyes, I feel like, Um It's somewhat of a passive role for her, Um, especially for someone who's taking charge of this defense or attempted Mm -hmm. defense of Fani in prison. Uh, I I could see some people finding her to be a a bit too demure or or maybe too quiet in the part. But I think this shows us early on that she does have some fire. She just carries Mm it differently um, as the as the film goes on. And I think it's also crucial, actually, that reminds me, Debbie brought this up because speaking of watching this at home, we did together and it didn't strike me, but she just said that, man, there's a real, and it's fitting for the season now, there, there's a real like Joseph and Mary vibe to the two of them. Hmm. And with this expected child, and some of the uh, camera work, how it sees Tish. And it, it speaks even to the love scene you're talking about. Sure. You know, this beatific view of her. Without a doubt. As this young mother. And again, this this couple, you know, living under oppression mm-hmm. on, in an oppressive system. So, yeah, I think, I think there is something there. And also the fact that there's a distinction, as you mentioned, between how Tish's family um, relates to their faith compared to Fani's. Family and Mm -hmm. you know Baldwin himself was would probably be more critical of Christianity and the role of Black life, but it's interesting that Jenkins makes you know a little bit of a distinction between the two families Mm -hmm. here and how they handle it. So a lot of nuance, a lot of layers to this film.
1: Absolutely. If Beale Street Could Talk opens in limited release this weekend, it expands to more cities, including Chicago, on Christmas Day. So it is going to be a couple weeks if you are here in the area before you can see it. We obviously encourage you to do so. And if you agree or disagree with our thoughts on it,
0: we would love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Our thoughts on Hirokazu Koreda's Shoplifters when we come back, plus a game of Massacre Theater. Then with critics groups around the country announcing their annual awards, we'll discuss the winners of the contest Adam and I voted in. The Chicago Film Critics Association. Stay with us.
1: Evokes folks, just a very quick thank you note here that we wanted to get to first us thanking all of you who have donated some of your hard earned money our way in support of the show. It really does keep us doing what we're doing. And we want to
0: highlight a Silver Club donation that came to us from Jennifer Stevens, who passed along this note. I'm donating this money on behalf of my husband, loyal film spotting listener Luke Schultes, for his Christmas present. He's also getting a film spotting t-shirt. Thanks for bringing him so much joy. Well, thank you Luke for listening and Jennifer for what seems to be the most thoughtful
1: gift of the year, right Josh? I mean, I would agree. A t-shirt and a donation. Clearly. Luke, we hope we haven't spoiled Christmas for you.
0: <laughs> oh
1: that's from the trailer for shoplifters from director Hirokazu koreda the prolific japanese filmmaker is a five-time palm door nominee he took home the trophy finally at this year's Cannes film festival back in may we do have a lot to hit on this show besides the cfca awards and some golden brick contenders to throw into the mix i do hope to offer a few thoughts on spider-man into the spider-verse which opens this weekend but we do definitely want to devote a few minutes here to shoplifters it's about a poor tokyo family that gets by on small-scale theft and things get complicated when they encounter and decide to shelter a runaway girl josh what did you think
0: well, I'm thinking about this now in the context of Beale Street, of course, and what comes to mind mm-hmm. is the way this family comprised quite differently from the family we see, speaking of either Tish and Fani or Tish and her parents and sister, but they've also created their own space for goodness and loveliness in a yeah. world that's kind of, let's just say, not for them, oh, <laughs> Fair enough. If, if not as actively yeah, against them. Yeah, maybe not them. as openly oppressive. Yeah, yeah. And yet at the same time, what's distinct about shoplifters is you're also aware of the I feel like Jenkins managed a sense of safety in those spaces. Like, at least in there, they were pretty safe. Even if we still get echoes and punctures of the outside world. Here, you're always tactilely aware of how on the edge this family is living Mm -hmm. because largely of their status in society. And when one of them... You know, can't go to work because of an injury, where that puts them suddenly, um, financially and in other ways. And even the space they have, which is in some ways familiar from other Japanese films we've seen with, um, you know, eating, sitting on the floor and the bed mats and so forth and the sliding door to an outdoor area. But it's like compressed it's 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 almost like they live in a series of closets right mm. and they just have to keep sliding these little doors to get to the kitchen or to get to the the room with the the tub in it um so you just feel like they're always struggling to scrape by you're rooting for them and then the movie has this very lovely which we won't get into i guess it's a twist but you learn more about them mm-hmm. which further emphasizes all of these themes both their um, their vulnerability and the wonder of the goodness that they were able to create the fact that they created it out of those pasts yeah if that leaves it vague enough yeah
1: I think it does there is a line in this film maybe comes about a half an hour in where one character says to another, maybe the bond is stronger when you choose your family. And for a filmmaker like Coretta, whose approach is simple, relatively straightforward, but his characters and their dramas are so complex, it's a little bit disappointing maybe when he simplifies it that way, when he actually, I think, underlines precisely what he's examining in this film. But he also earns it, I think, because just as much... As this film makes a case for the strength of that bond between this family that is chosen to come together, it also really explores the weaknesses, or at least it reveals the fault lines Mm -hmm. in this dynamic. And you mentioned Beale Street. I think the movie could have only focused on them as these kind of righteous misfits within society to a degree. Thinking back on what you were saying about Roma last week, like Cleo, kind of secular saints Mm. in their own way as well. They figured out a better way to live if only society with their rigid definitions and all their rules could accept their version of family. And that's all true to an extent. I think that the movie does hint at that, but just as true are the failings of this family unit. The selfishness of the mom and dad in this scenario, their inability to establish a kind of moral or ethical code that works for these kids that are under their watch, and the disillusionment, I think we can say, that occurs when their actions don't completely match their words. There are a lot of examples of lines or decisions characters have to make, like the moment where they are ultimately deciding whether or not to take in Yuri, to take in the little girl. And one of them says, well, it's not kidnapping if you don't ask for a ransom, right? They're they're navigating mm-hmm. this terrain every single day, really minute to minute. How about the the moment, too, where we see, you touch on this, Josh, but two workers, this is the mom in this scenario, they both work for a company, they're already losing their hours and having to divide up the work between more people. And then the boss has to make a decision to let only one of them keep their job but of course doesn't accept that responsibility and actually puts it on them they basically have to fight that out and then we see how those two people they should never be put in that position but then when they are the kind of deals they have to make with themselves the kind of terrain they have to navigate again
0: personally just to survive that's what this film is really getting at the mother in that scene, the mother figure played by Sakura Ando. And as we're going to be getting to acting discussion with the CFCA Awards in a bit here, man, she was on my shortlist because hmm. the, this whole cast is great. I mean, also, a, a special mention should be made for Kieran Kiki, who plays the grandmother figure. I, I just learned actually passed away since the film was made. Also, so good, like, absolutely stole Coreyda's last film, After the Storm. And here, she's just wonderful again as a woman who's really honest about the weight of aging and facing the end of life a uh, similar role and she's wonderful in it but sakura ando is this mother figure has a moment um, she has you know an e- easy smile in a lot of scenes that helps this family get through what they're facing and then later in the film when she is facing something that you just can't smile about at all she she kind of like almost paused oh, at yeah. her face mm-hmm. and the camera holds it there as if she's looking for that smile and trying to find, and like, it's just kind of staggering. Mm-hmm. That That's maybe one of the, I don't know, as I describe it, maybe it sounds, you know, sounds kind of big but for me it was one of the no. more surprising yeah. moments that moved me in a film that I can see some people might accuse of sentimentality. I'm with you. I agree that especially after this twist puts them in a larger social context, I think it does earn any tears that it gets, but um I can see some people arguing that it might be a, a bit too sentimental hmm. for them. Yeah, I I
1: don't see that and I guess if we got into spoilers I might understand that if someone really did feel like it gets a little bit too sentimental. For me, it still was always so rooted in the struggle that even when it has moments like the one I described where they articulate the benefits, if you will, of choosing your family, or even like when they go to the beach and they have this break from their daily struggle, it never felt like it was Coreta being too manipulative in those moments to me. And I think maybe that's too because of the subtlety of his camera work. I think about the way he so subtly depicts certain moments, even like the one where Yuri has to disguise herself. It becomes evident that they might be accused of doing something wrong, that people might recognize her, and she gets a haircut. And the way he transitions to that scene is to actually cut to her toes, kind of just moving along the stool she's sitting on. She can't even touch the ground, and it's just her little toes, and we see the hair falling around her. Instead of showing her sitting in the chair and a close-up and getting the haircut and her reacting to it. We get the moment after that where she's looking in the mirror with one of the other women in the scene. And even one where something kind of harrowing happens near the end of the film, we don't actually witness it. It's a physical act where someone jumps, and we don't see that moment happen, but we just see what they were carrying, these oranges, spill all across the ground. Now, I wouldn't call it sentimental at all, but absolutely heartbreakingly moving, this movie has one of the top scenes of the year for me on that front. And it's the one where Nobuyo, who is the the mom, mm-hmm. is sitting with the young girl, Yuri, and explains to her what love yeah. really feels like. If that doesn't melt you, then you have something seriously, seriously wrong with you. Shoplifters is currently playing in limited release. If you get a chance to see it and agree or disagree with us, again, feedback at filmspotting.net is the email. Obviously, we've talked about this a lot. We're apparently trying to get everyone to really feel sorry for us this week, Josh, that we have all this hard preparation to do for our top 10 films of the year. But that countdown is coming on next week's show. Tasha Robinson from TheVerge.com and the next picture show, and her many film spotting guest appearances will be here. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and his many film spotting guest appearances is going to be here as well. We are still deciding what format we're going to exactly follow. People may remember last year we tried something different. Instead of the traditional countdown from 10 to 1, everyone going around in the circle and making their picks and occasionally having a lot of overlap, we actually did divide the show into the outliers and The consensus pick. So the movies that appeared, let's say, on three or more lists, those were saved for that second show. And the movies that were maybe only on one or two lists were discussed on part one. We may do that again. We may go back to the old format. We got a little bit of feedback on it last time. For the most part, it seemed like it worked, but it really will be determined by our top 10 list, which yeah. we're all still shaping at this moment.
0: Yeah. Once those shake out, we'll probably have a better idea of what direction to go to. Yeah. How can you take part in the best
1: of 2018 conversation? You can leave us a voicemail with your number one film of the year, 312 0744 or send us an audio file you can email that to feedback at filmspotting.net you can also vote in the film spotting
0: poll which asks you simply what is the best film of 2018 and our list probably is comprised mostly of films that came out earlier have been out for a while we know that uh, for many listeners Beale Street being a good example doesn't open here in Chicago till Christmas Day haven't had a chance to see everything yet but you've likely seen these so of these options what is the best film of 2018? Annihilation, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Black Klansman, First Reformed, Hereditary, Isle of Dogs, Paddington 2, A Star is Born, You Were Never Really Here. And of course, we will give you the option of other. There are, spoiler alert, multiple films
1: listed there that right now are definitely going to make my top 10. Fair Makes to sense. say for you, John? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I see three, four for sure. Okay. Yeah. So...
1: We think we made some pretty good choices here, but if none of them strike your fancy or if you just caught up with something new that you loved, you can vote other and write that one in. Now, it's kind of shocking, given the history of film spotting poll results, but all but one of these options is currently beating the Cone Brothers, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So the Cone Brothers never get beat. They always dominate these polls. And I'm not sure what it is, other than maybe some people are down on this as a Cone Brothers achievement, though generally... I've seen only positive thoughts
0: on it. I think it got mostly positive reviews, but as I've perused the top ten lists from other critics just looking at the titles, haven't seen it pop up on many. Hmm. So it seems to be in that middle tier. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna make up for all that. Just you wait. Adam, you can't put it in like slots one through six for each (laughs) segment. Why not? Just the Gone Brothers. Just one pick.
1: Other is leading the pack by a pretty big margin, but so far there is no single write-in vote running away with it. That might change once people get a chance to see films like Roma, which is starting on Netflix this weekend, discussed and strongly recommended on our last episode. Other popular options are Sorry to Bother You, Leave No Trace, Minding the Gap, The Writer, First Man, and Eighth Grade, and all of those Are worth catching up with if you have the opportunity again, you can vote now at filmspotting.net. It's right there on the main page. You just have to scroll down a little bit. If you leave a comment in the poll, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. We are not only trying to play catch up on the best films of the year, but we're also making time for a few under the radar titles, potential nominees for the 2018, the coveted 2018 Film Spotting Golden Brick Award. It's our annual award for the best underseen or overlooked movie of the year that comes to us from a new or emerging filmmaker. So oftentimes it is a first-time filmmaker. Sometimes they've made maybe two or three films, but they're new to us. We weren't otherwise familiar with their work, and we have
0: a bunch of titles we're going to kind of quickly add into the mix. It's already this year a pretty crowded field, and here we are. We're going to add four more, but that's all the better, right, to give all of these small films... Attention. So, Adam, you've been doing a lot of work. Three titles you want to throw in the mix. The first is Shirkers, a documentary made by Sandy Tan. That's right. It all about. Sam, actually,
1: on our last episode, got the title in, but I said that to be officially considered, it had to be talked about on the show. So consider this my official co-nomination with Sam. And it's a film that wasn't on my radar at all until we got an email from a listener, Brendan Kaufman. He says he's in Idaho Falls, Idaho. It sounds... Lovely. A little bit made up, but sounds lovely. Brennan says, I wanted to recommend another new documentary that would be a worthy golden brick contender. Not only is Shirkers the first film by Singapore-born Sandy Tan, but it's about her original debut that never was. The original version of Shirkers was an independent project from a trio of young women in 1992 that could have been a crucial piece of Singapore film history until it was sabotaged by their mysterious producer and mentor George. The documentary Tan made about that movie is part cinematic mystery, part behind-the-scenes glimpse of Lobo budget filmmaking, and part meditation on the importance of film. There are references to Godard and Soderbergh, but I think there are some links to Varda as well. It's a fascinating movie told with some very striking images and a lot of nuance and tan's portrayal of everyone involved. You've probably already heard talk about the movie, but it's on Netflix now, and I would love to hear your thoughts about it. Brennan really nailed it. It is a fascinating mystery at its core. What became of this film that was shot in 92? But mainly, who was this mysterious mentor, George? And the picture becomes clearer on him as Sandy investigates. And she really does kind of become a private detective. And she has to work with some private detectives to learn more. But that picture's still really fuzzy. He was someone who took advantage of his friends slash students slash collaborators but he's also someone who gave them it seems exactly what they maybe needed from him he was a mystery at least in part because of what they chose to see or what they were blinded by because of their own insecurities or ambition i think maybe more ambition in the case of tan it is an artist discovering her voice tale through shirkers the film that was shot in 92 and this new documentary and it is very much about the film scene in singapore in the 90s which is fascinating something i knew absolutely nothing about the one element that brennan didn't really touch on that i think is really crucial to the film is it's the story about friendship because it is about these three women what's become of them how they have split apart how they have also remained friends since the time of making this film. And one of the friends is this woman who has gone on to become a producer, a filmmaker in Singapore herself named Jasmine. And I just love her brutal honesty as she's talking back to her friend on camera and remembering some of these situations very differently than Sandy remembers it. And Through those confrontations, Sandy is really confronting herself, the person she was then and the person she is now. And as a filmmaker, she doesn't ever try to refute what Jasmine is saying or stifle her in any way, which I really appreciate that she's willing to look bad on camera. That's absolutely part of this journey for her. So I do recommend Shirkers, which is on Netflix right now. Another movie that's on Netflix right now I know is The Brick nominee you want to talk about that comes to us from a filmmaker, Alice Rorocker, who fits into the category of pretty established. I think this is her third feature film. I think that's right. And there are some cinephiles who are very high on her work. We have been in the dark about her until now.
0: Yep, that's right. Happy as Lazaro, my first film that I've seen from Alice Rorocker, and man, she's got a unique touch. That is one of the reasons... We're throwing this out there as a Golden Brick nominee. Definitely has unique vision. And I think also um, the main character, the title character here, played by Adriano Tardiolo, falls into this secular saint idea we've been talking about the last few shows in that uh, this is a young man who just seems a bit apart in terms of goodness from the rest of the world. This is set in a remote Italian farming village. And there is a landowner who comes and visits every once in a while, but mostly these people are on their own, left to survive on their own and do this work on their own. So even as they're being exploited in a way um, by the landowner, they also exploit Lazaro. I mean, a lot of what you hear in the soundtrack is Lazaro, Lazaro. And they're always asking him to come and help and do some work. And he does. He's, he's earnest. Um, the, there's a chance perhaps he's even intellectually disabled. The, the film doesn't really spell that out. He's certainly taken advantage of and he just responds with a gentle half-smile. And a willingness. It's a very interesting performance. Uh, Tardiolo is a newcomer and he has this, uh, he's got a sincere stare, he's got a stiff walk and he wears these oversized pants so that he looks like Charlie Chaplin's little tramp. Definitely something they had to be going for there, the way he shuffles from chore to chore. Uh, And I will say that the movie, about halfway through, there's a dramatic shift that I'm not going to give away, but it does fully embrace these little hints of magical realism that Roarwalker has been dropping into the movie here and there. And then the second half kind of goes all in on that in ways that are pretty fascinating. I I guess the the easiest way to describe it is imagine a mid-century work of Italian neorealism, but if it just went into a field and took a nap and had a dream, Hmm. that's kind of what you would end up with with Happy as Lazaro. So certainly worth checking out on Netflix. Really, it's been, you know, you can argue and debate and it's a good discussion to have about the availability of films like these outside of theaters and what's the proper way to watch Mm -hmm. them. But I've been really grateful uh, to be able to catch something like this as easily as I could. Another recommendation for me is one
1: you can't see on Netflix, but I believe you can see via various streaming options. And that's a movie called Thunder Road. It's... Really the story of a cop in Texas who is dealing with the death of his mother, not dealing with it well, and we kind of see how the rest of his life collapses under the weight of that and some other poor choices. This is another recommendation that came to me via a film-spotting listener, Brent Dawson on Twitter said, huge fan of The Writer, which is the Chloe Zhao film that's definitely a contender for The Brick this year, but Brent says, The Golden Brick will have no credibility Unless Thunder Road is considered. Josh, reckon with that, the golden Brick, your vote will have no credibility As unless Thunder Road is considered. I did a little bit of research after seeing this tweet, saw that it was written and directed by the same guy, Jim Cummings, and he's also the star of the movie, really, in kind of every frame of the film. So as far as the criterion, Josh, of personal vision slash voice, that's undeniable. The question, of course, is whether or not it's a vision and voice that needs to be supported and encouraged. And after watching Thunder Road, I would definitely say yes, mainly because I don't know how he pulled off the tone here. And I imagine it's something that may not work for everyone. I think you actually would really respond to this film and find it quite funny. It's all set up wonderfully in the opening scene one long take 13 minutes the camera almost solely on Jim Cummings the entire time and this part I understand was an award-winning short film that came out in 2016 played at some festivals I believe and he has expanded it he's expanded this one sequence into the film we see now Thunder Road but he's just offering a eulogy for his mother and he's carrying up there this pink child CD player that we come to learn had to belong to his daughter, who he is estranged from. She's living with her mother as they're going through a divorce. And he's truly comical in the way he's scattered and awkward. And that's all before he launches into an interpretive dance of the title Springsteen track. Oh, my. With no backing music because the pink child CD player doesn't work. (laughs) So it's, it's that out there. But he's also genuinely grieving and in pain and he's earnestly trying to pay tribute to his mother who was a dancer and who loved the song thunder road so that's where that comes from i don't see it just as him obligated to go up and give some kind of performance some kind of testament to his mother because that's the expectation he's failing at it miserably but it's a sincere attempt on his part to mourn her that is probably stemming from his having to reckon with The mysteries of their relationship. It kind of comes out that maybe they weren't that close, and that actually makes it harder for him, more painful for him to deliver the eulogy, not easier. And you know me, Josh, I'm the guy who watches these types of cringe wrecks with my hands over my eyes usually. They make me so uncomfortable. But here I was, not only through the eulogy, but the entire film, uncomfortable to be sure, but also cracking up and wanting to give the guy a hug and tell him just to keep on going. And it really did sustain that High Wire Act over the entire 90 minutes. So definitely recommend Thunder Road and think it should be at least a
0: contender on the short list for A Golden Brick. Okay, yeah, it has been on my list for a little bit as well as has the last film we want to get to here. As a matter of fact, I mentioned at the top of the show that there were about five or so I really want to squeeze in in this next week. And the tale from Jennifer Fox is certainly one of those You were able to see it, Adam. I
1: was, and this was truly a last-second edition. I didn't come prepared with any thoughts on this movie, and I just saw it last night, but I know it's overall been highly acclaimed. I've been wanting to catch up with it for several months. Our friend David Ehrlich included it. It's in his top five of the year, I think, certainly in his top 10. If you watch that great video he does every year, the top 25 films of the year montage he puts together, the tale is in there. And it did just get brought to our attention right before we started recording this show that that's Jennifer Fox's first feature film, The Tale, which is available on HBO On Demand. It stars Laura Dern playing Jennifer Fox. And it's her... Exploring her own past and a potential sexual abuse situation that she has managed to go through her life and kind of deny and forget about. And it all comes back to the fore because of a story that her mother, who's played by Ellen Burstyn, finds when going through some old papers. And in reading the story, she becomes horrified by its implications and sends it to Jennifer who wants to keep it at bay and doesn't really want to go back down that path. But once she starts reading, she becomes a lot more inquisitive and starts exploring her own past. And so we see the way Fox does that by recreating some of those scenes. Elizabeth Debicki, so good in Widows this year, is one of the key figures in this storyline. And we do get those moments, Josh, where Fox through The character that Dern is portraying will then interact with her past self and sometimes say things directly to her. We don't see her, but she'll say things to her, and then that 13-year-old version of her will talk back to her on screen. Sometimes she will inquire why certain characters made certain decisions they did through that same technique where we hear Dern's voice, but we're only seeing the character in their setting in the past, responding to the present day. Jennifer, I think one of my favorite touches in the film, Josh, and the way she kind of uses this inquisitive meta technique is when she's initially going back in her past and she has the vision of who she was at the age she thought she was when these events from her past all unfolded. And we see the version of Jenny played by Jessica Sarah Flom. And then when she's going through a photo album with... Her mom, as I recall the scene, she doesn't even recognize herself in a photo from that time. She believes this is her, and then her mom says, no, she gets out the different photo album and says, you were only 13 then. This is what you look like. Look how small you are." And just like that, the version of Jenny we've been watching in these flashbacks is now replaced by a different actor, Jenny at only 13 years old, much less mature, played wonderfully by Isabel Nalise. So there's a lot to unpack in this film, definitely worth everyone's time. And- Definitely worthy of brick
0: consideration. Okay, so add the tail, Thunder Road, Shirkers, and Happy as Lazaro to the Golden Brick shortlist. Can I hit you with one more? Can I complicate
1: it just a little bit more? You're on a roll. Well, this also came in via Twitter just today, if we needed to make this more difficult. Eric Hafner asked this question, should 8th grade be considered for the Golden Brick? By my count, it seems to meet all the criteria, and its box office total is lower than recent noms like The Edge of Seventeen and Fruitvale Station. Now, going through my memory bank, thinking back on this, I'm positive at the time that we talked about Eighth Grade on the show and Bo Burnham, the director, was on the show, we addressed this and we had decided to leave it out. And I believe we disqualified it because unlike every other film that is on our shortlist— Eighth grade did get a wide release. That was kind of hard to believe, but it appeared one weekend on over a thousand screens. Yeah. And that's kind of always been a technicality for us. But you look at the box office total. There's no way that more people, the masses, if you will, are more familiar with eighth grade than they are minding the gap or the writer, I would argue.
0: Yeah, I feel like it got more attention, um, and and so maybe they would be. And those two examples he lists are interesting because uh, I'm sure Edge of 17 got in as many theaters and Fruitvale Station as well. But I think we were still kind of narrowing down yeah. our criteria yeah. during those years. Where we've landed, though, we do really look at number of theaters. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe at the end of the year we should look at box office and, I and mean, measure that. You can't say it's not overlooked based on – what
1: it's earned true that's true. the committee will have to make a ruling and we might be adding yet another title to the list
0: my name is peter parker i'm pretty sure you know the rest i saved the city fell in love then i saved the city again and again and again look i'm a comic book a cereal i did a christmas album and a so-so popsicle but this isn't about me not anymore we're not going to add spider-man into the spider-verse though right pretty pretty confident that that's not a golden brick no nominee no okay it's going to be seen widely okay that was my assumption i just want to make sure as we're hashing this out you've already seen it there were preview screenings Mm -hmm. here in chicago it opens wide this weekend i'm jealous i wanted to go couldn't make that one i'll definitely be catching up with it b's on her marvel kick and i know this is on her radar as well the plot will. From what I understand, there's there's a lot of Spider-Men. And they're not here. all men. Is that and some Spider-Kids, some Spider-Women, some Spider-Girls? <laughs> yes. Help me out a little bit without spoiling too much.
1: Well, I can try to do that. The main Spider-Man, if you will, is Miles Morales. He's a high school student. He lives in Brooklyn with his family and... Yeah, the multiverse is opened up and all of a sudden in our world, a bunch of other Spider-Men appear. And as I said, they are not all men. The voice work here is really good, as you would expect. This whole movie is a lot of fun. I did take my kids with me to this one and a couple of them are really now down the Marvel rabbit hole, just like B is. Oh, I'm oh gonna, yeah, I'm going to talk were,
0: them into doing what we're doing—the movie by movie revisit. They would love that because, you, uh,
1: as it is right now, I mean, with you, <laughs> Josh. Josh, can you adopt them maybe for a couple of weeks and then uh, that can happen? We're already past Ant Man, so okay. no. Yeah, Father of the Year though. You could you could take on that mantle for sure if you did that. But yeah, they're all in. So they were of course, making me stay for the post credit scene, and they laughed hysterically at that. I will not reveal any part of that scene, but they're buying into all of these different mythologies, and certainly they really enjoyed the film, all four of them, even my daughter Sophie, who doesn't really care about all of that stuff. One of the Spider-Men in the movie, this alternate Peter Parker who shows up, his name is Peter B. Parker, and he's portrayed by my guy, Jake Johnson does the voice work for Peter B. Parker. Where has he been all these years? you know, he's been living it up at Jurassic Kingdom, (laughs) Jurassic World, Fallen, whatever. He's been in one of those movies. And he does really good work here as the voice, as I said, Peter B. Parker, who is this alternate version of Peter Parker, just slightly different looking, has not had quite the same life as Peter in our world has had he's a little bit out of shape at this point has eaten a few too many slices of pizza and burgers and he's there to kind of be a mentor to miles as spider-man but of course he really isn't equipped at all to be that teacher that he needs but there's a line i think it's him at one point he says to miles remember what makes you different is what makes you spider-man and that's one of those lines that you kind of write off as some comic book mumbo jumbo When you think about it, of course, some aspects of Spider Man never change, but the differences in the individuals under the mask do create a new kind of hero. So, are the elements that make a movie different what makes a good Spider Man movie? And I think this movie is really that question, if I express that articulately at all. I think what this movie is trying to get at is the way there's certain established. Iconography and myths surrounding Spider-Man that obviously culturally we have embraced in many different forms over the years. And this one builds off of that and then challenges it and invents off of it in compelling ways. Miles himself is super creative. He's really into music. He sings. He's a graffiti artist, and he's really extroverted. And that's completely different, of course, than the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire, Mm -hmm. Peter Parker. And the rhythms, then, of the film are completely different. Even when he's not Spider-Man, there's an energy to this film and this character that we don't get with the Maguire Spider-Man. And he has an openness with his emotions and expression that's maybe more reflective of a teenager in the present day versus someone like the one Toby Maguire was portraying. And I think the visuals also get at this as well. I mentioned he's a graffiti artist and the finale is this super chaotic kaleidoscopic affair by design. It's all there and what's unfolding in front of us, all these other dimensions colliding and it's stunning. But for me, Josh, it was also a little bit maddening and they have clearly as filmmakers decided to, embrace the 3d aspect of the film which i saw a 2d version and i do think that results in some blurry imagery that becomes really disorienting where you feel like you are supposed to be wearing the 3d glasses at times hmm. there are images that you're waiting for it to come into focus but then the images adjust suddenly and maybe that's not something that was an accident if you will it was actually something they were going for in effect they were going for it didn't work for me But what does work is the way they don't just bring a static comic book page to the screen. You really do become immersed in a comic book in this film. There's a detail and a texture to the animation. It appeared to me almost like a subtle cross-hatching. That texture you'll get sometimes with lines running parallel and diagonal with each other on a page that just gives the entire world depth. So overall, I do think the visual approach works, and the movie is filled with characters who have subscribed to a certain worldview and they cling to it. And that might have consequences for their families, their relationships, for society. And this movie says, come along for the web slinging ride. We're going to take these myths and the heroes we've created. They're really important, but they are mutable. They have to be. And we all have to embrace the evolution. And I did embrace Into the Spider-Verse, I think a
0: lot of people will. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is opening wide this weekend. Maybe that's when I'll get a chance to check it out. If you've seen it and agree or disagree, let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. All right, Adam, I think we're, I don't even know if I want to put it in these terms, four weeks away does that sound right from our yeah, live show? About exactly a month. Yeah, January 11th. It's going to be here very quickly. Film spotting live, our annual rap party. Well, we took last year off, but it's good to be back. We're also going to be back where we were the last time we did this at the University of Chicago's Logan Center for the Arts. 7.30 p.m. Friday, January 11th. Tickets are on sale. And there's a link to get those tickets, as well as find out more information at the top of the homepage at filmspotting.net. So we'll be there, of course, but also Tasha Robinson and Michael Phillips will be coming back after doing our top 10 show with us. And we're going to add Angelica Bastian, who's been a guest co-host on the show a couple of times now. Ticket sales, we got an update just before we started recording tonight. Mm-hmm. sounds like they're doing well, moving yes. along briskly, but there is still room, so check out filmspotting.net slash events for all of that information also at filmspotting.net you can subscribe to the weekly film spotting
1: newsletter new issues every monday late breaking schedule changes random musings first crack at new film spotting polls and there are some show transcript excerpts and they're basically just if you're a big fan of sam van halgren if you go back especially to the old days of film spotting when he was the original co-host of the show and you miss his voice well you're not hearing it but you're definitely getting it in the film spotting newsletter so we encourage you to sign up you can do that at filmspotting.net slash episodes or you can find the sign up
0: box right there on the main page of our website all right now we're getting to masquer theater Massacre theater late in the show the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt a couple weeks back adam and i massacred this scene what's been going on i want to hear all i about just
1: told it. you what's been going on it's been going on for five years you've been seeing him for five years no, no no not seeing not seeing we couldn't but both of us loved each other all that time didn't we oh that's all <laughs> you're crazy i can't speak about what happened five years ago because i didn't know daisy then and i'll be damned if i see how you got within a mile of her unless you brought the groceries to the back door but all the rest of that is a goddamn lie daisy loved me when she married me She loves me now. No, no. I'm sorry, Mr. Buchanan. She
0: does no. Oh no, no, she does, though. She does. And what's more, I love Daisy too. That was Joel Edgerton devouring everything around him except Leonardo DiCaprio in 2013's The Great Gatsby. It was written by Boz Lorman and Craig Pierce based on the F. Scott Fitzgerald classic, directed by Lorman. So listeners noted a few connections, including Tyler Moss here from Fort Collins, Colorado. It hadn't occurred to me that the Massacre Theater the past weeks might be from The Great Gatsby until you referenced it later in your discussion about burning. To be honest, I don't remember if this exact line actually made it into the Baz Luhrmann version, but Josh's vaguely European rich guy accent was a great approximation of Joel Edgerton's bombastic sneering Tom Buchanan. As to the connections, the most obvious is Elizabeth Debicki's presence in both Widows and The Great Gatsby. Her Jordan Baker was such a striking presence, not least of all because of her height. It's great to hear that such an interesting actor is getting a shot at some expanded roles. Eric
1: Olson in Port St. Lucie, Florida, says, well, obviously, Great Gatsby director Baz Luhrmann co-created the Netflix series The Get Down, whose cast includes Jaden Smith, son of Will Smith, who acted alongside Widow star Viola Davis in Suicide Squad. All roads lead to Suicide Squad. (laughs) Let's hope not. Oh, and Elizabeth Debicki is in both Gatsby and Widows if you want to count that. Yeah, I think
0: that's what we were going for, Eric. Taylor Cole, right here in Chicago, Illinois, said connecting to the 1974 version of Gatsby, it was scripted by Francis Ford Coppola and came out the same year as Coppola's The Conversation, a film relevant to the week's Best Picture follow-up poll. The 2013 adaptation features both Elizabeth Debicki from Widows and Carey Mulligan from Wildlife, both films discussed on the show that week. One more really sweaty connection. Both versions won the Academy Award for Best Costume Design. The 2013 version was nominated in that category alongside 12 Years a Slave, the previous film, and Best Picture winner from Steve McQueen, of which Widows is his follow-up.
1: Our listeners go deep sometimes. Thank you to everyone who participated and everyone who sent in a comment. I'm still recovering from your villainous turn yeah. as tom buchanan almost I blew me right out of the studio devoured everything in yeah, the yeah you did yeah. <laughs> you're crazy
0: i mean talk about chewing scenery there's not even a board left i don't know if i have energy left for this <laughs> show's massacre theater to be honest probably with you. Not. i needed
1: more recovery okay you're gonna reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner
0: the winner is jason kinchin from balerica massachusetts balerica you're going with balerica it what looks would, right. What would you say? I don't know. There's a Bilirica, lot of different Bilirica ways. I mean, I like as, the way that as Adam says it,
1: Billerica. <laughs> Congratulations, Jason. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. What happened to the canola line? You're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his canola. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey, I'm letting it go. But don't say
0: it doesn't matter. Every line matters.
1: We'll see how much acting energy Josh has left as we get to this week's edition of Massacre Theater.
0: I have a request. Yeah. Uh, I don't think this is giving too much away, but there's a moment here where I, I'm, my character is choked. Yes. I don't need to be choked. Just stay, Are on, you sure? stay on that side because of the board. I don't know if you noticed, I'm getting closer to <laughs> this you. This is why I bring it up. I think I can <laughs> imagine
1: that. Out. I don't understand why we're doing this scene anymore. I had all my motivation. So I had all the motivation I, I needed. It's suddenly a late night. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. It does tie in with a topic we've discussed on this show. Yes. That's all we're going to give you. But we will point out, not to throw everyone off the scent here, that there is a name mentioned here right off the top pretty much, and we have changed it. Yes. That is not the name of the character. This is a brilliant addition substitution by our producer, Sam. I don't know why, but we're going to run with it. You started off. Are you ready? Yes. And action.
0: We have to shut it down. Please tell me how.
1: Flash Thompson. Brilliant but lazy.
0: Look at what's happening. We must
1: destroy it. I can't destroy it. I won't.
0: He once spoke to me about intelligence. That it was a gift to be used for the good of mankind.
1: A privilege.
0: These things have turned you into something you're not. Don't listen to them. It was my dream. Sometimes to do what's right, we have to be steady and give up the thing we want the most, even our dreams
1: and And scene. scene. Now, did you notice how, even though this is not a Star Wars scene, I was doing that
0: Vader thing. I was doing that Jedi trick. I was still choking you. There from was, like five feet away. I felt some constriction. <laughs> it was incredible. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be constricted on that last line, though, so it kind of came I'm glad you went. lightened up
1: a little bit. <laughs> you actually enunciated the words. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net.
0: Your deadline is Monday, January 7th. The winner, we're going to select that randomly and announce it at our live rap party on January 11th. If you come to the live rap party, not only can you hear it announced live, But even more exciting, you could be part of Massacre Theater. We are going to invite an audience member or maybe two up on the stage to play along. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. You know what, Josh? I'm even going to throw out, if you really want... To participate in Massacre Theater, mm-hmm.
1: instead of us just randomly picking someone You're out. You're going to hold auditions? Well, you can make a case for it. <laughs> if you want to send us an email and explain why you think we should pick you. No, 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 no. We might. No explanations. We might. Demonstrations. I agree. We want some I audition agree. material. We want tapes. You can submit an audio file. You can submit a video file. Scene you of to your earn choice. This. Love it. Sneer at you? I don't ever sneer at you. <laughs> oh, sweetie, you don't have to. You get your point across. Okay, so fine. Then say what you want to say then. Hey, Dan. I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying Okay, things. so try again, release yourself. Oh, release you you mean. Yeah, fine, release me. Just say it. Just say it. Don't you
0: swear at me you <laughs> Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? Tony Collette there with Alex Wolf in a clip from Ari Aster's Hereditary. So Hereditary was the recipient of three nominations from the Chicago Film Critics Association. That is our Film Critics Association, Adam. I was very excited to see that. I'll say right now, because it has fallen out of my top 10, Hereditary was in the running for one of those spots. I really liked it, but I'm still excited that it made the top list for our group, Collette a best actress nominee and the film itself was nominated for best picture. The winners were announced last Saturday night. You did your due diligence. I did. It was the last film knowing that it was nominated for a number of categories and knowing that it would be, it was the last push you needed. It was always on the list. And of course you're not a fan. I'm not really a fan of it. Yeah. Just make this brief, please. I, I'm not going to fight
1: the battle here. It's not not fair to anyone who loves this movie or to me who cannot mount a proper defense at this point. We talked about it a little bit Saturday night and there are a few issues I have with the film. I like a lot of the performances including Tony Collette in that lead role and their style to burn here. I absolutely understand why people are so enamored with the film. It did not make my top five in my initial ballot submission. We're not going to go through every category here. We're not going to talk about every pick we made or every choice that we submitted but we do want to just touch on some of these awards briefly alfonso coron's roma did receive the most nominations with nine the favorite from yorgos lanthimos and bradley cooper's a star is born each received seven the best picture prize did ultimately go to roma coron also won for best director ethan Hawke took Best Actor for First Reform. Colette won for Hereditary, Best Actress. Best Supporting Actor, a nice surprise here. Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me? Olivia Colman as the queen in The Favorite took Best Supporting Actress. So just looking at those top categories, and we may get into a few of the nominees. Josh, what
0: were your surprises, your pleasant surprises? What were your disappointments? You know, I'm happy that Hawk got it for Best Actor. I went that way as well. So that was pleasing. The best actress category, I'm fine with Tony Collette getting it. I think I would have leaned for Yelitsa Aparicio from mm-hmm. Roma of her reasons we discussed in our review. But Collette, as we were talking about Saturday night, um, man, just the range she has in that film from wild out of her mind to really subtle, personal work she does. And even a moment we both Mention That stood out to us where this mother is saying something out loud in terms of her grieving process that she hasn't said, verbalized before. And the way Colette and Astor as a filmmaker just kind of let that moment, they don't underline it, right? She just kind of pauses and you see that she's recognizing mm-hmm. that she's never said that before. So really nuanced work from Colette there. That That was a a good win for me. The
1: other nominees in that category were Yulitza Aparicio for Rome, Regina Hall for Support the Girls, Lady Gaga, A Star is Born, and Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me? So I like Colette's performance a lot, but... I had three of those finalists on my top five and did vote for them ahead of Colette, Aparicio McCarthy, and Regina Hall. Support the Girls was my number one.
0: Yeah, I was glad to see that Regina Hall made the cut there. I did catch Support the Girls just in time to do the final voting, and she is so good. My number one on my
1: final ballot in a lot of categories did win several of these categories. So I'm happy with that. Obviously, there are two I will single out, not really surprises. But like you, I had Ethan Hawke for First Reformed as my number one. And I thought it was a lock, especially if we're given a little bit of hometown love for the movie shot in Rockford. But I feared that maybe Something like Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is a very good documentary, would beat out Bing Lu's Minding the Gap for Best Doc. It did not. Very happy to see that Minding the Gap won. My disappointments, I actually did vote for Bing Liu as the most promising filmmaker for Minding the Gap. He had some really stiff competition, though. Ari Aster for Hereditary, Bo Burnham, 8th
0: Grade, Bradley Cooper, A Star is Born, and Boots Riley. Sorry to bother you. And I did go Ari Aster in that category because, as as you recognize, just the, the proficiency on display in Hereditary is really something. I guess overall, not even looking at
1: the winners, but just looking at the finalists, the lack of love for the writer was disappointing for me. I had it in the mix for best score, for cinematography, for best actor, Brady Jandro, and also best original screenplay. I think there was a bit too much A Star is Born love. On yeah, the degree. I mean, we ballot. both like the film. We both but like the film. I like it okay at and, this level. And I even like Gaga's performance and I like Bradley Cooper's performance, but it wasn't top five for me in any category. I'm guessing that you were stunned, like I was, to see Isle of Dogs shut out across the board and not even win best animated film. And Spider Verse is a really good movie, but I was stunned that it beat out the Wes Anderson movie.
0: Yeah, you know, I think I, I just, my love for Isle of Dogs is so intense and personal that I kind of don't really care at this point what anyone yeah. else thinks of it. And and I am I wonder if the timing had something to do with this as well. I mean, there was so much enthusiasm around Into the Spider-Verse right when these this voting was going That's on. That's true. Um, that I could see that being influential. And maybe it's just a stop-motion bias. I mean, you'll hear more... As we get to next week's show about uh, stop motion and the thing of beauty that Isle of Dogs is, you'll hear more from me. Um, but the other category, I mean, maybe this is the only chance to really talk about it. I had Brian Cranston for his vocal performance Hmm. in Isle of Dogs in my best actor group. As I mentioned, Ethan Hawke was my choice to win. um, But he is just so crucial and I'm always lobbying for voice acting work to be considered in these categories. And I think Cranston is so crucial what that movie Mm -hmm. wants to do and he's just wonderful.
1: No, he is. And, And there are other great voices in that film. Overall, best actor was maybe one of the weakest categories. Obviously, happy that Ethan Hawke was nominated and that he won. Really happy that Joaquin Phoenix was included for You Were Never Really Here. And that's partly because... I think when you look at the totality of his work this year, he's one of the performers of the year between what he did and You Were Never Really Here, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, and The Sisters Brothers. All three vastly different movies, vastly different performances, but the level of quality and the level of nuance that Joaquin Phoenix brings to all those roles, he's remarkable. And I said this on Twitter, some people may have seen it, to Brian Tallarico, who's a CFC board member and who writes for RogerEbert.com. But we're at the point for me, that we should just make it the Joaquin Phoenix Best Actor category. Even if he wasn't in a film this year, let's just put him in the pantheon because he's just that freaking good. And this year really was no exception. I still
0: voted for Hawk ahead of him this year, but man, those three performances are good. Yeah. Strong year from him. I'll throw in another left field choice that I had in my best actor category. And that was Lakeith Stanfield. Oh, I did too. He was in my top five. Because man, the the unique presence he brings to that, his sort of dazed performance, but making that compelling and also crucial to what that movie was trying to do. So I think I had him um, ranked number three on my list. Yeah. Michael B. Jordan for Best Supporting Actor was a finalist. And I know we were both happy
1: about that, was in my top five. I think he was your was choice. My vote. Yeah, yeah, so he was in the mix for me in my top three. I was also really happy to see Stephen Yun for Burning get a nomination for Best Supporting Actor, though can't argue with Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me? I no. really do love that turn yeah. in that film. Now, my top Supporting Actor of the Year, Simon Russell Beale, got shut out for The Death of Stalin. And another Grant, I thought, might
0: be in the mix here, but overlooked Hugh Grant for Paddington 2. So I have Brendan Gleeson for Paddington 2, ranked number four in supporting actor performances. I know there's a lot of enthusiasm right now for putting Paddington on year-end lists in some former fashion. That was the highlight for me, Brendan Gleeson. So I went that direction. I had to do Knuckles. a couple of uh, couple write-ins here. That's an option yeah. for the CFCA. I think I had to write in, if memory serves me right, Harry Melling from The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. That yeah. was my favorite performance there. Jesse Plemons from Game Night, so good. Yeah, maybe like maybe. Did you have to write him in? I thought he was on the. Was he on there? You know what? I think he was on there. That surprised me. I think this is surprising that I don't think Ben Foster was. For Leave No Trace. Hmm. And maybe they had him under lead, and I considered him supporting. At any rate, in my year end collating of these lists, I have Ben Foster ranked number two for best supporting actor of the year. So, so good in Leave No Trace. Yeah, he
1: really is. I see him here in the mix, but you're right about Harry Melling wasn't on the ballot, and he's up against so many other good performances from that film. Yeah. I have Tom Waits yes. for the ballot of Buster Scruggs as my number three, but you're right, Melling should be in the mix as well. If you are curious about all the nominees, all the categories, and who the winners were, we will link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net or by going to chicagofilmcritics.org. And, Josh, that's our show.
0: Kind of a a funky, odd one, but we covered a lot. A lot. Our minds have been cleared, and now we can sit back and finalize those top ten lists for next week. If you want to head over to filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. That's where you can also vote in the current film spotting poll. Jump in here. What is the best film of 2018? If you haven't already, please also check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Still time to put in those holiday gift orders of film spotting T-shirts or other film spotting merch. You can do that at filmspotting.net slash shop. If you want to follow us on social media over on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is filmspotting and I'm Larson on Film. And to subscribe to the weekly filmspotting newsletter, you can do that by going to filmspotting.net slash episodes. Out in wide release this weekend, Mortal Engines, based on the book by Philip
1: Reeve, adapted by Fran Walsh, Philip Boyens, and Peter Jackson. The Mule, a 90-year-old horticulturalist, is caught transporting $3 million worth of cocaine through Michigan from a Mexican drug cartel. It's directed by and starring Clint Eastwood with Bradley Cooper and the always good Michael Pena. And yes, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is out, recommended by me. Out in limited release here in Chicago, we get Ben is Back, starring Julia Roberts and Lucas Hedges, directed by Peter Hedges. Mary, Queen of Scots, starring Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie. Shoplifter is the latest from Correda is out, and we recommend you see it if you have the chance. And one, I know Josh doesn't recommend, but there is a fair amount of love out there for it. It's a divisive film. I think that's fair to say. Vox Lux, directed by Brady Corbett, starring Natalie Portman.
0: Yeah, and to your point, uh, I really didn't go for it, but I've gotten some vociferous responses from a few film spotting listeners who have seen it and just. Love it. So probably one of those you need to really go see and decide for yourself. Vox Lux. Next week, it is part one of our Best of 2018
1: Roundtable with Tasha Robinson and Michael Phillips. Please do join us for that.
0: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so we can find some new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
1: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.